Um, so this is, uh, it should be our last week of uh, reading on the mode of existence of technical objects. We're um, just at the end of the conclusion. Um, <clears throat> so we saw last week, um, Simon Don's sort of limited engagement with Marxism um, in, in relation to technology um, and the concept of alienation. Um, and uh, Simon Don argues that um, the, the alienation um, that is a result of the economic um, structure of the work relationship is um, a secondary form of alienation and the more fundamental form is um, essential to the work process uh, and not limited to any one economic formation. Um, so the alienation that um, that consists in um, uh, uh, being disconnected from the technical reality um, that the worker is working with is a more fundamental alienation than the alienation of uh, not having ownership of uh, the means of production. Um, and uh, I think we um, had a little bit of, well, we had some discussion of the extent to which this seems plausible. Um, I think uh, um, I think there is some problems with uh, with Simon Don's conception of alienation and uh, um, the, how how he thinks this alienation can be overcome. Um, and uh, his engagement with Marxism is not very deep. He doesn't, uh, um, you know, as usual, he doesn't cite any particular text. He just um, sort of uh, gestures towards Marxism in general. Um, so it's not uh, a very well-developed um, engagement. Um, and so I think it would be something um, interesting to look into uh, more would be a, a uh, a deeper engagement or, or a development of the relationship between Simon Don's work and, and Marxism or, or particular Marxist um, theories. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's sort of where we are today. Uh, so we're at 257, uh, right at the bottom of the page, I believe. We read the, the big long paragraph. Um, so I can start reading in just a sec. The relation with the technical object cannot become adequate individual by individual, except in very rare and isolated cases. It can establish itself only to the extent that it will succeed in making this inter-individual collective reality, which we name trans-individual, exist, because it creates a coupling between the inventive and organizational capacities of several subjects. There is a relation of causality and reciprocal conditioning between the existence of clear, non-alienated technical objects used according to a status which does not alienate and the constitution of such a trans-individual relationship. It might be desirable for industrial life and companies to have technical committees at the level of their employee councils. In order to be efficient and creative, an employee committee should be essentially technical. The organization of channels of information in a company must follow the lines of technical operation and not that of social hierarchy or purely inter-individual relations, which are inessential with respect to technical operation. The company being the ensemble of technical objects and men must be organized on the basis of its essential function, that is, its technical functioning. It is at the level of the technical operation that the whole ensemble of the organization can be thought not as a configuration of, uh, uh, not as a confrontation of classes, i.e. as a pure social ensemble, or as a grouping of individuals each having their psyche, which brings the ensemble down to an interpsychological schema, but as a unit, a unity of technical functioning. 
The technical world is a world of the collective, which is adequately thought neither on the basis of the brute social fact nor on the basis of the psyche. To consider technical activity as inessential in its very structure and to take as essential either the social communities or the interhuman relations arising from technical activity means not analyzing the nature of this very center of group and of inter-individual relationships, which is technical activity. To keep the notion of work as the center of the social and the antagonistic permanence of a psychologism of human relations at the level of management and of capital shows that technical activity is not thought for itself. It is approached only through sociological or economic concepts, studied as an occasion of interpsychological relationships, but not grasped at the level of its real essence. The obscure zone subsists between capital and work, between psychologism and sociologism. Developing between the individual and the social is the trans-individual, which is currently not recognized and is through the two extreme aspects of either the work of the laborer or the management of the company. So he's uh, bringing back in this concept of the trans individual, um, which we've seen, uh, I think, only in the conclusion of this book. Uh, it hasn't been present earlier in in the book. Um, but uh, so it has to do with um, a relationship between um, between what is pre-individual within uh, multiple individuals. So it's um, uh, it's not a relationship between uh, two two or more constituted individuals, but um, it's the uh, the connection between those individuals that um, that has to, that arises on the basis of what is pre-individual within each of those individuals, or or what has not yet undergone individuation. Um, so it's uh, um, a, a form of uh, social relationship which is not between already constituted individuals. And uh, another point uh, worth noting, I think, is um, when he he mentions uh, right near the end of the of the paragraph, um, the the obscure zone subsists between capital and work, between psychologism and sociologism. So this is a reference again to um, what he's developed a little bit in this conclusion uh, and which we'll see more in the individuation book, um, but the, the criticism of the hylomorphic schema uh, insofar as, uh, as it uh, shows a, a relationship between uh, form and matter. Um, the actual, uh, there's this, what he calls the obscure zone. Um, it's the uh, the actual relationship between the form and the matter is left obscure by the schema. It, we're just given a form and said that it inheres in this matter, um, but we don't have an understanding of what the actual relationship between them is. Uh, and so, um, Simondon here is arguing that uh, uh, the relationship uh, when when work is taken um, not in, in technical terms but in uh, sociological or economic terms that the same type of uh, obscure zone um, appears within our, our thinking I'm wondering what he would say specifically about bureaucratic technologies in this respect right where you know the uh, the, the ways in which um, you know, filing systems and the circulation of documents and, you know, electronic environments to communication environments today, they are all technologies and yet they, they seem to be very much organized around this sort of soci sociologistic way that thing that he's trying to sort of sidestep, but it's hard to imagine the technology itself as, as anything but that to a degree. 
Yeah, that's an interesting um, suggestion um, because when we when we think of the types of technologies that he uh, the, that he analyzes in this book, um, they tend to be uh, industrial technology um, or instances of an industrial technology. So we have uh, uh, motors and turbines um, and then electronics, um, um, but. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't really give um, any examples of, of what we could call a, a bureaucratic technology. Um, and uh, I wonder if you know that's in part just um, a product of the time, in the sense that um, the the technology, such as it was at the time, was things like filing systems and and uh, you know paper. Um, and so it uh, it's technology in a in a broad sense but it's not maybe um apparent as technology in, in the way that a, an engine or a, um, a, um a vacuum tube or whatever is um yeah so i think um a broader understanding of technology um uh, or of a, a technical reality that it would include something like um uh, you know, filing systems and and communications networks and so on um, might be hard to fit into some of the categories that he um, develops here. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe we could put something like a um, a filing system at the level of a technical ensemble, um, and then um, within that ensemble we would have. Um, um, you know, the I guess the technical individual would be something like a, a an individual filing cabinet or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how um, how he would analyze um, the the system as a whole, but um, it would. Uh, I guess the the difficulty is that um, so much of what constitutes uh, a filing system is not. Uh, is not technical in the narrow sense. Uh, it's it's something that's uh, you know different social practices institute a filing system and and you know the, the circulation of documents and so on. Um, it's not it's not um, uh, crystallized into a technical form in the way that some of the other um, systems that he's uh, discussed, like the electronic or, or electric power network, for example. Um, as he gave that example as an ensemble. Um, but uh, the the bureaucratic circulation of documents is something that is realized by human action in a way that the circulation of electricity is not. Um, so it's uh, a little bit hard to analyze um, a, a, a bureaucratic technology in the same way, I think. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I, I mean, every, and everything you just said is very sensible. Uh, I, I wonder whether you might look at something like the library sciences or something like that, like sort of different different paradigms of how people think about the flows of documents from, you know, whether it's from the ways that, you know, libraries were organized by Library of Cons- Congress designation versus hypertext or something like that. Like those might be moments where you could feasibly say that the technology is somehow concretizing in a way that's more sort of purely functional in the way that Simon Don't talks about it. Yeah, that would be an interesting um, uh, sort of um, investigation uh, to try to look at the ways that the, the different um, 
systems of uh, you know circulation and and distribution and management of documents you know throughout different um, eras, uh, different um, technical systems. Like obviously, there's a a big difference between um, you know the production of documents in a society where um, where documents have to be uh, written by hand, for example, um, you know, pre-printing press versus post-printing press. Um, and then again, once you have um, um, automatic printing uh, or machine printing, uh, that introduces a, a new um, system of, uh, of production of documents. And, uh, you know, each of those systems would have its own, um, I guess, uh, system of distribution of those documents as well in connection with the way that they're produced. Um, but yeah, that would be a, a whole, a very interesting investigation, but I, I don't, um, uh, it, and it would also be interesting to see to what extent it fits with um, the some of the categories that Simon Don has, has developed, like um, concretization and uh, um, the the analysis into the three levels of the, the technical elements and the individual and ensemble um, to see whether whether those concepts uh, sort of um, hold their validity when applied to a different uh, sphere of technical reality uh, in, in the production and, and distribution of documents. Yeah, for sure. That's a good way to put it. That would be really interesting. And what would someone else like to read the next paragraph? I'll go. The criterion of productivity, as well as the will to characterize technical activity through productivity, cannot lead to a resolution of the problem. Productivity is very abstract with respect to technical activity and does not allow one to enter into this activity in order to see its essence. Several very different technical schemas can lead to identical levels of productivity. A number does not express a schema. The study of productivities and the means to improve them allows the obscurity of the technical zone to persist as completely as the hylomorphic schema does. It can only contribute to the confusing the theoretical problems, even though it plays a practical role in the current structures. So this is, a, again, um, or I think we can tie this back to um, the, the criticism of a, a purely management approach to technology, or, or to technical reality, I should say, um, to, um, to look at um, technical objects and ensembles only from the point of view of productivity um, means that the actual working of those technical um, in technical reality, the working of that technical reality is uh, left obscure in the same way as in the hylomorphic schema. Um, so we, we just have um, uh, an input and an output, and the relation between them is just expressed in terms of uh, uh, productivity, in terms of how much output for a given input. Or, um, and so the, uh, the, uh, the actual operation of the technical reality is left out of the picture. Um, and so as he said, we can have multiple different technical operations that give the same uh, output in terms of productivity, um, and we're still left without any real understanding of that technical operation. Uh, I, I've been thinking, uh, departing from 
the earlier discussion about filing systems. Uh, I'm not sure if I can link this with productivity, but uh, it seems productivity is like an alien criterion uh, when we are talking about the essence of technical activity. Uh, but something that is not alien uh, uh, is found in what he calls inventive and organizational capacities of several subjects in the earlier paragraph. Hmm. So uh, uh, I think the, the second part, the organizational capacities, uh, is really related to that uh, filing uh, system example. But I'm not sure what uh, notion he has of the link between inventive and organizational. So this brings me uh, to a certain hunch I had about Simon Don. I think uh, there is a bridge uh, to be made between his work and design discourse. Mm. Uh, his work often seems to uh, offer these overtures toward design or different uh, ways of designing uh, technical systems or uh, ensembles and the, the values he names uh, I think uh, might hold keys to what would uh, his vision of design for filing systems and so on efficient and creative he says um, so he has this way of slipping in these uh, values sometimes uh, which look like he really favors them yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting that you bring that up. Um, the, uh, um, I mean, design is a field that I know very little about, so it's uh, um, there's not much I can say on, on that. But I, I do think you're right that um, there's uh, a certain normativity of design uh, or a theory of, of the norms of design within Simon Don. Um, he uh, uh, like we saw this in uh, one of the the earlier texts that we read. Um, I forget what the title was, um, but um, where he talks about um, the importance of uh, modularity in design. Um, so the the ability to switch out components and re replace components without um, replacing the whole technical technical object. Um, um as a, as a, a sort of norm of, of good design um, and uh, we've seen also in this book and I believe also in that same text where he he has this criticism of uh, ornamentation in technical objects and uh, the way that um, the the um, the technical functioning of the object is obscured by um, ornamentation or, or sort of purely um, um, stylistic elements that that don't contribute to the actual functioning of the object, um, and uh, yeah, so we, we can definitely draw some principles of design from his work and uh, or norms of design. Um, and uh, it, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, anyone within the world of design uh, or um, systems engineering or something like that has has ever. Um, you know, try to extract those principles and, and sort of set them out in a, uh, a separate way. Yeah, that would be interesting. I don't know of any work either in that area. Yeah, it seems like every week we come across uh, some <clears throat> some uh, problem or, or um, area of investigation that, uh, you know, we can, and someone could 
pick up and write a paper on or uh, a chapter on uh, or something like that. So yeah, that would be, mm-hmm. um, I would be, I'd be happy to read that paper if someone uh, wanted to write it. I think also um, if we look at this, uh, this concept of productivity um, in, in relation to the, the you know, um, filing systems and, and bureaucratic um, operation, um, this is something that um, maybe maybe there is more of a connection uh, today than there was um, at the time he was writing. Um, um, I'm thinking of um, you know some uh, office software allows for management to basically um, uh, surveil their employees and, and see you know count up how many emails they're sending or or how many keystrokes per hour they're they're um, they're doing and and so on um, and sort of uh, apply all these productivity metrics to um, um, office type um, operations uh, and then the same thing in the academic world where you have um, um, you know productivity metrics based on publications and uh, um, uh, you know the impact factor and and so on um, and uh, there's increasing use of the concept of productivity in some areas where uh, until fairly recently it had not been applied in the same direct way. Um, so I think uh, I think this concept of productivity probably has a, a broader application today than it did at the time Simon Dong was writing. <laughs> I mean just that just that the, uh, the the whole conversation to me is provoking the like that that the technical function and productivity are just kind of hand in glove now right that there are that this distinction that he would make you know if you start to look it really feels like the the ways in which people are becoming inventive are ways of sort of allowing for greater levels of automation and temporal compression and the removal of people from their from the functioning of the ensembles it's like we're we're concretizing people away from the circumstances and it seems to be happening on the basis of productivity right it feels like there's like a like the two are sort of flush with each other now in this way that it wasn't in the past, but it becomes harder to theorize um, like how you would, uh, the, the kind of ethos that he's, that he's suggesting here as, as, as any bit different from just the seeking of better product, better levels of productivity. I mean, I guess, and I, I guess I would say that the one thing that he does hold out is that, you know, that the, the, the sort of more, um, the sort of, cloudier horizon of sort of how we would have a different relationship to technology I definitely hold that out as something as a kind of comparative or a, a kind of a distinction that we'd want to make in terms of like what's wrong with technology but nevertheless I, I do see them as being quite a bit more flush than they might have been in his time so the question then would be what what sense we can make of um, technical developments or progress in technology um, separate from the idea of productivity, um, you know, to the extent that those two ideas are are so um, intertwined today, whether whether there's still room for a concept of technical development which is not linked directly to productivity. Yeah, right, and that doesn't see that even doesn't see the kind of more uh, I don't know, sort of totalizing religiosity of the th- some of the things that he was saying pages past as as sort of like 
that we should, why shouldn't we want that for societies to just be more productive because they are more wealth producing or something like that too so that even the social dimensions of it i don't know it's, it's i mean it gives way to a kind of totalizing critique of capitalism or something like that which obviously is not all that helpful but i really yeah but you put the question you put the you put the position well there yeah maybe we can extract something like a gesture toward uh, an ethics of nurturing Uh, schemas rather than yeah. numbers mm -hmm. because uh, it seems number uh, holds like an index to this ascendance of productivity mm -hmm. as the norm of technical activity as external norm uh, but maybe if uh, we can uh, unpack what he means by a schema uh, in general maybe we would have uh, a beginning uh, to address this question Yeah, that does seem like an interesting place to start for me, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely more um, on on this notion of schemas in um, one of his uh, lecture courses on um, imagination and invention. Um, so he sort of traces the the process of invention from uh, um, there, like there's a sort of um, the first stage is is sort of a um, generating a, a schema in imagination um, and then uh, realizing that there's a, a sort of process of development through which that that schema is realized into um, an actual technical object. Um, uh, so the schema of operation is um, um, uh, sort of the, the, yeah, the abstract representation of the functioning of the technical object. Um, And we've seen, I think, a little bit in this book about the um, about how um, what he's calling for uh, the science of a, a general technology or a general mechanology, um, how it um, would extract these abstract schemas of operation from technical objects, and how this is um, uh, an essential element to incorporate technical reality into culture, um, so that um, the these abstract schemas of operation should be part of uh our just sort of general cultural heritage um and uh yeah so there there's um some scattered references to this notion of the schema but um it's basically the the um sort of principle of functioning of technical objects um and uh, uh it's it's what's um what the act of invention creates is this technical schema, uh, which then becomes realized in a, a technical object. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe one other strategy would be to say, to be sort of asking, well, what do we mean by productivity, right? Like, and that sort of latent within narratives or, or discourse around productivity are models of how, what it means to think. Uh, and that you would sort of, you could use, you could sort of bring in Simondonian ideas into into these accounts of what it means to be a productive thinker um you know whether it's how you know philosophy informs machine learning or something like that or software design or whatever and the way that we think about software objects that those are that those are still places where you could maybe bring in a simondonian uh understanding of 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 individuation or something like that to sort of say well thinking is actually something different and so what you say is productive is actually needs to be thought of in more deeply philosophical ways and then we come up with a better a sort of more robust formulation of what it means to be a productive society or something by that by those means 
Yeah, I think um, I think the um, I mean the criticism of productivity here that Simon Don is is uh, setting out doesn't mean, of course, that the the notion of productivity is inherently bad or something like that. Yeah. Um, um, it's uh, it's it's more that um, it has a, a a limited use, and then yes. once it goes beyond that sphere of use, it uh, it leads to confusion. Um, and, uh, and so I think it would be, it would be possible to try to, um, I guess, to, um, intervene in something like machine learning or, or some other sphere, um, and try to, um, sort of demarcate the boundaries of, uh, where the legitimate use of the concept of productivity is, um, and, and sort of set out a, um, what the what the uh, what should be beyond that um, notion of productivity, um, or what what is uh, not captured by the notion of productivity? Um, so yeah, I think I think some of these concepts can be applied in that way and uh, taken to to intervene in specific disciplines that are um, you know tend to be governed by the notion of productivity and um, uh, try to, um, I guess, separate out what doesn't fit under that notion. Yeah, that's that's a more nuanced way of putting it. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Well, I can go. But philosophical thought can play a role in this elucidation of technical reality as an intermediary between the social and the individual psyche in the order of deontological problems. One cannot account for technical activity by classif classifying it among the practical needs of man, which is to say by allowing to appear as a category of work. Bergson attached the technical activity to homo faber and showed its relation with intelligence. But in this idea of the manipulation of solids as the foundation of technicity, there is a presupposition that prevents the discovery of genuine technicity. Bergson, in fact, starts from the axiological dualism of the closed and the open, of the static and the dynamic, of work and reverie. Work attaches man to the manipulation of solids, and the necessities of action are at the source of an abstracting conceptualization of the primacy given to the static with respect to the dynamic, to space with respect to time. The activity of work is thus enclosed well within materiality and attached to the body. This is so true that science itself, whose use of technical schemas Bergson sensed, is, cons is considered as having a practical and pragmatic function. In this sense, Bergson would be fairly close to the broad trend of scientific nominalism, mixed with a certain pragmatism, which one can sense in Poincaré and then in Leroy, inspired by both Bergson and Poincaré. However, one might wonder whether this pragmatic and nominalist attitude toward the sciences is not based on an inexact analysis of technicity. In order to be able to affirm that the sciences have their sights set on the real, that they want to think, it is not necessary to show that they have no relation with techniques, for it is work that is pragmatic, not technical activity. The gesture of work is directed by its immediate utility. But technical activity reaches the real only at the end of a long process of elaboration. 
It rests on laws. It is not improvised. For technical solutions to be efficient, they must reach the real according to the laws of the real itself. In this sense, techniques are objective despite all the aspects of utility they may present. Pragmatism is not wrong only because it incorrectly reduces the sciences to techniques, whereas scientific knowledge emerges when techniques fail before the real or fail to harmonize among themselves. Pragmatism is also wrong because it believes that it reduces science to a purely improvised solution by reducing it to technical activity. Hmm. At root, pragmatism conflates work and technical operation. Uh, so we have here again um, uh, an engagement with uh, Bertrand um, and uh, to some extent a criticism of, of him, even though uh, even though he's uh, one of the key references behind this work and the individuation book as well. Um, so we saw earlier in connection with the notion of intuition um, that Simondon uh, uh, criticizes or, or separates himself from Bertrand uh, insofar as for for Bergson, it was um, intuition is uh, distinguished is not capable of grasping matter. Um, so it's uh, uh, matter or, or the extended world or, or solids, as he says here, um, would be um, the sphere of intelligence um, or, or the intellect, um, and uh, um, Intuition would be the 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 mode of knowledge um, that has to do with the experience of the passing of time, uh, and it would be inextended uh, and separate from the material world. Um, and uh, and so Simon Dong has has criticized that conception um, by arguing that intuition is capable of grasping um, the the material world um, and it, its process of genesis. And then so here he's also criticizing. Um, the other side, the the notion of uh, intelligence or, or intellect as uh, as what grasps the um, the material world or the world of solids, um, and uh, the the criticism is that um, so as he says, it, it, this uh, pragmatic or pragmatist approach to science um, or or to intelligence that that sees the the work of science as a um, uh, having to do with um, human needs uh, and reducing, um, you know, reducing the complexity of the world to um, fit human needs or something along those lines. Um, that that uh, reduction of science rests on um, an impoverished idea of what technical activity is, uh, because um, because technical activity is not simply uh, uh, a manifestation of human utility or something along those lines or, or um, um, uh, a, re a response to human needs. It, uh, it has to, uh, technical activity has to grasp uh, the principles uh, of, uh, of reality in order to be realized in reality. So in order to create a, a technical object, you have to um, uh, organize organize it in such a way that it functions in accordance with um, the the laws of the real, as he puts it, or um, you know, we might say, that, we might say the, the laws of nature. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so in, in this sense, um, pragmatism uh, or this pragmatist approach to science um, that tries to reduce it to technical activity 
um, fails because technical activity itself is not um, as impoverished as this pragmatist approach um, suggests it is. Right. And I think I would also want to um, just note here that again, um, he's setting out a very um, a very strong or, or a very clear distinction between work and technical activity. Mm -hmm. um, so what he takes um, as being the essential form of technical activity is the invention of a technical or the invention and, and creation of a technical object um, rather than um, working using a technical object um, or, or labor um, using a technical object. So it's the it's the act of invention and the the um, the way that that act of invention is extended through the process of uh, concretization. That's where the essential um, uh, technical activity uh, resides, rather than in the the use of a technical object in work. So the very start of this paragraph left me just a little bit confused, just because I don't know the term well. But he says that. Um, the philosophical thought can play a role in this elucidation of technical reality as an intermediary between the social and the individual psyche in the order of deontological problems. My limited understanding is that it has to do with kind of a duty that's owed to one another. Is that the right use of the term deontological? And if it is, then what, what is the, what's, what's, why characterize what follows on these terms? Yeah, um, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I, I hadn't uh, sort of picked up on that. But yeah, it is a, a bit of a strange use of uh, of the, the the term deontology because you're right; it does generally have to do with uh, um, I don't know the theory of duties or something like that. Um, um, so uh, what exactly it's doing here? Um, I guess maybe to some extent he's just using it as uh, synonymous with something like ethical problems. Yeah. Um, um, so insofar as um, um, the relationship between science and human needs uh, is something that is um, an ethical problem, yeah. uh, um, that would be the way that it, uh, the term is being used here. Um, uh, so that, that that problem would fit into this order of deontological problems, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure exactly what he's using that term for. That's fair. That's a fair explanation, I think, and maybe it's a matter of translation or something. Who knows? Well, in French, it's, it's the same thing. It's l'ordre des problèmes deontologiques. So it's uh, it's really just the same thing. Um, okay. So I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it's a translation issue. All right, then. But I think we can probably connect this with uh, this idea of deontology that he's um, put out and put put forward in this um, sort of obscure way. Um, uh, in this text here, we can connect it with the idea of axiology that we saw in um, one of the other texts that we read before this book. Um, and I think maybe he's used the term in this book as well. I can't remember, but um, um, he, uh, you know, axiology would be the theory of values. Um, and uh, I think this uh, order of deontological problems probably has something to do with the theory of values um, and uh, 
uh, or of, of norms governing technical reality. Um, um, you know, given that he's he's just just before this, he's um, criticized the use of productivity as a norm for uh, technical reality. Um, it makes sense that he would sort of go on to uh, treat the idea of norms for technical reality in a broader sense um, in the next paragraph. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. I can go. Um, in this sense, the analysis of the mode of existence of technical objects therefore has an epistemological import. A doctrine like Brixone's opposes work to leisure and gives leisure, in the form of reverie, a fundamental epistemological privilege. This opposition returns to the one made by the ancients between servile occupations and the liberal disinterested occupations, having the value of pure knowledge, while servile occupations only had a value of utility. Pragmatism, by appearing to reverse the hierarchy of values, defines the true by the useful, but it preserves the schema of opposition between the norm of utility and the norm of truth to such an extent that it results in a relativism in the order of knowledge, or at nominalism if this attitude is pushed to its most rigorous and extreme consequences. Science is not more true, but more useful for action than common perception. Yeah, so I think this paragraph is pretty um, straightforward. I don't have too much to say about it, but um, I wonder if we can also um, tie it back in with um, in his criticism of the hylomorphic schema, where he uh, he argues that it's essentially the the schema um, that belongs to the slave owner who uh, orders you know a certain number of bricks to be made out of a, a batch of clay or something like that. Um, but doesn't actually um, carry out the operation of forming those bricks himself, um, uh, and so it leaves that the the interaction between the the form and the matter as a, an obscure zone. I think that same. Uh, I think we can tie that this uh, paragraph back to that conception, um, uh, insofar as these. Um, liberal occupations would be the ones that have this um, epistemological privilege uh, in a society where um, where there are certain people that have this leisure for contemplation and for uh, for these liberal occupations um, so it would uh, um, this uh, separation between the liberal and the servile occupations would reflect the the social reality of uh, um, you know, a society in which some people do have this leisure to uh, to um, uh, to for contemplation. Glad you could join us for the last paragraph. Oh, good. Okay, good. I haven't missed everything. Yeah, this is the the last paragraph of the book. Who wants to have the honor of uh, finishing the book for us? <laughs> Okay, well, no volunteers, then I will do it. Um, uh, okay. If, on the contrary, one appeals to the veritable mediation between nature and man, namely to techniques and to the world of technical objects, then one arrives at a theory of knowledge that is no longer nominalist. It is through operation that a becoming aware takes place, but operational is not synonymous with practical. The technical operation is not arbitrary, pliable in every way to the whims of the subject according to the randomness of immediate utility. The technical operation is a pure operation that puts into play the veritable laws of natural reality, 
the artificial is something natural that has become that has been solicited, not something false or human that has been mistaken for something natural. In antiquity, the opposition between operational knowledge and contemplative knowledge valorized contemplation and the scole that conditioned it. Technics, however, is neither work nor scole. Philosophical thought, insofar as it comes from the tradition and uses schemas coming from the tradition, does not contain any reference to this intermediary reality between work and scole. Axiological thought itself is at two levels and reflects this opposition between work and contemplation. The notions of the theoretical and the practical still, refers, still refer to this adversative distinction. In this sense, it is permissible to think that the dualism inherent in philosophical thought, a dualism of principles and attitudes because of the double reference to the theoretical and the practical, will be profoundly modified by the introduction of technical activity considered as an area of reflection within philosophical thought. Bakhsan has only reversed the correspondences of scolae and work by granting work the function of establishing a relationship with solids, hence with what is static, whereas the ancients considered it a fall into the world of generation and corruption, hence of coming into being. Bakhsan inversely attributes to scolae the power to allow a coincidence with duration, with the moving, whereas the ancients assigned to contemplation the role of enabling knowledge of the eternal. But this reversal does not change the condition of duality and the devaluation of the term corresponding to the work of man, whether this term is the moving or the static. It seems that this opposition between action and contemplation, between the immutable and the moving, must cease in the face of the introduction of the technical operation within philosophical thought as area of reflection and even as paradigm. So he's uh, he's here um, giving some some hints or uh, pointing towards the the theory of knowledge, which is developed more in the individuation book. But um, um, it's a, a notion of knowledge that is um, operatory um, or operational, um, but uh, not necessarily practical. So uh, it's operational in the sense that um, through intuition or this in intuitive knowledge, we grasp the coming into being of, um, of um, uh, an, an essence, uh, a technical essence. Um, we grasp it through this genesis. We we carry out a genesis within our thought, um, and uh, and so that's the the way of grasping um, a technical essence. Um, but it's not practical because it's not related to work. It's not um, it's not a um, a work operation. Oh yeah, thanks sixty one for uh, putting Scole into the uh, into the chat there. Yeah, so that's um, um, I think. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the reference is to um, what well, he just said in antiquity, but um, um, uh, I'm not sure which uh, philosophical school he's um, referring to in particular um, um, as as using this term. I could uh, guess it. Uh, this Aristotle will be uh, one person uh, implied here, maybe. Yeah, there's definitely in Aristotle. There's definitely um, this uh, notion that um, contemplative knowledge is the the highest form of knowledge, um, or, or the only uh, form of knowledge in the proper sense, um, and uh, it requires leisure um, as uh, is, is sort of the prerequisite for contemplative knowledge. Um, so it's definitely um, 
this this conception or this opposition is definitely at work in uh, Aristotle's work, but uh, I'm not sure that that's specifically who he had in mind because, of course, he doesn't cite a specific author here. But, but this paragraph, it doesn't have the feeling of a closure, uh, not much. I, uh, as far as closure goes, uh, I find his chapter introductions much more closure-like. Yeah, I think this last paragraph um, sort of leads right into the uh, individuation book um, because it, uh, um, it, it sort of it, it sort of promises what um, what this way of thinking will do in the future, rather than sort of uh, what has already been done in this book. Uh, so I think maybe that's why it has that sense of not really being a closure. So uh, this is like uh, a really dumb question, maybe, but uh, is it uh, the case that he wrote? Uh, the individuation work after this one? Uh, I'm not really sure about the timeline of when he wrote them because they were, um, so at this time in the French university system, you had to present two theses. Um, like there was a major thesis and a minor thesis. Um, and so the individuation book was the major thesis and this one was the minor thesis. Um, and uh, and so they were, um, uh, sort of prepared in the same time period, but I'm not sure um, if he wrote one before the other or, or was writing the two at the same time. Um, but the the publication of this book came before the publication of the individuation book. So no other uh, comments on this last paragraph? I'm still wrapping my, my mind around it. Sorry, I'm not really talkative. <laughs> I'm 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 very interested there. No, that's okay. Um, so I thought we could, um, you know, now that we've gone through the whole book, maybe we can uh, try to reflect on on the whole thing and and see what um, uh, you know what elements stood out for everyone, um, or or is there something that you're sort of taking away from this book um, as, as like a, a key. Uh, lesson or, or concept or something like that? I'm finding myself resorting to a lot of um, explanatory uh, tools from, from, the ta- from this text. Um, there was a, I think, like when, when the essence of technicity part first started, um, I went through a kind of intense kind of saturation phase where about 50% of my explanations ended up being somehow related to Simonton. Um, but now I'm, I'm down, I've got that down to about like 10 to 20%, I think. So I'm, I'm more or less kind of scaled back my like extreme excitement and willingness to integrate into my, uh, kind of heuristic model, uh, Simonton's. Um, and I've been, I've been able to kind of like contextualize it with like the different kind of um, arguments within like theories of nature. Um, and that's been kind of helpful as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of taking a step um, towards like uh, the process philosophy and philosophy of action angle. So I'm kind of trying to kind of make more general 
models in which I can, you know, contextualize what Simundan is saying here, especially in a thir third part. Um, but one thing that keeps on coming up in <clears throat> when I'm talking to people is, well, the two two big distinctions. First, the distinction between um, speculative knowledge and operational knowledge. Um, I've always had a certain kind of uh, um, way that I distinguish the practical from the operational in my communication, but it's never very, it doesn't really have a very high rate of success when I, when I make that distinction with people. And when, when people hear me do that, they immediately conflate my operational language with practical language. And then there's this mis whole misunderstanding chain related to philosophy of action, I guess, related to that. Um, so they're, they're kind of in this, playing this kind of shell game with me at, at that point. They can either just, they have the option to always provide a skeptical argument to kind of action claims. If I don't, if I'm, if I'm not very, very clear about the, that distinction between operational and practical knowledge. So um, I think that that's one of the things that I've been able to, um, one, one of the things that's been helpful about, especially with uh, talking to analytics who are very obsessed with epistemology, <clears throat> having a kind of like theorized meta epistemic distinction between operational knowing and uh, speculative knowing is just an extremely useful just disambiguation tool when it comes to a lot of disputes that people have about about issues in which they've gotten caught up in minute parts of definitions and such sure. so that's one one of the two things and the other of the two things i think that that and this was what originally was very intriguing to me is the, the reasons why it's important to separate religious uh, judgment from magical uh, judgment um, and, the, and the reasons why Simundan does this. And that's, and uh, I guess if, and of course I, I probably, yeah, I, there's definitely the third thing is like the positioning of the aesthetics, aesthetic judgment and all the different maneuvering of the aesthetics which Simundan uses. And um <clears throat> A lot of the, um, a lot of the kind of, uh, I guess, um, ringing trueness of what's going on in the third part is related to the aesthetic segment, I think. But it's not really clear how it all ties in to the argument in the last instance. Um, and this, the concept of aesthetics of aesthetics is, of course, extremely fascinating to me as well. But so those those three points, the the uh, aesthetics and um, the kind of placement of the aesthetics as like a tentative reunification of a primitive magical substrate of some sort, then the kind of differentiation between religious judgment and magical judgment, which is like oh, very much overlooked by people who um, are, are very like much in skeptical socio-political kind of camps, I guess, or socio-cultural camps, I should say. And um, then the speculative knowing versus the operational knowing, that's the other, those three things alone encompass probably like 90, 95% of what I, what I tell people about Simone Dunn. And, and usually I barely even mention Simone Dunn. I might throw it in there, but I try, I try not to do too much citation stuff because I had that problem with Hegel. And whenever I mention Hegel, everyone just gets angry. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a good, uh, a good set of takeaways. Um, um, yeah, it's um, 
it's interesting that you all of the points that you developed, I think, are all from the third part of the book, um, which you know I think I've, I've mentioned before um, is not really um, taken up that much in the secondary literature, or at least not as much as the the first and second parts, especially the first part. Um, um, a lot of the secondary literature focuses on the first part and the notion of concretization of the technical lineage uh, um, and you know technical evolution. Um, but uh, the part that um, that I um, you know have always well at least uh, you know since uh, for years um, in in reading this book the the part that's been interested me the most is the third part. Um, and I think. Uh, the idea of genesis um, and uh, of philosophical knowledge as having to do with genesis is something that I, I'm uh, interested in. Um, I guess there is, um, for me, there, there, I'm, I'm interested in the, the, the problem of what is the sort of specificity of philosophical knowledge, um, you know, in, in distinction from, say, scientific knowledge. Um, so, you know, philosophy is... Uh, is distinct from scientific knowledge, um, but um, we have to um, sort of understand. It's hard to specify what exactly um, what exactly philosophical knowledge consists in if it's not uh, scientific knowledge, um, unless you want to have recourse to something like uh, um, um, sort of like a, a mystical intuition or something like that. And I think Simon Don. Um, provides a, an account of what philosophy is that um, that gives you a, a that explains the specificity of philosophical knowledge without sort of relying on something uh, supernatural um, or something like that. Um, and uh, so I think that's that is uh, probably the the most interesting uh, component of the book for me um, is that that account of. Uh, the, I guess the meta philosophy of the third part of the book. That was probably the most stimulating part for me too. I'm I was glad that you wanted to focus so much on it. I find that so just jumping off from what you said, I I sort of only understood Simondon through the through the secondary literature by and large, and therefore came into things with that focus that you denote the sort of like a, a good understanding of concretization and a sort of. A, a desire to sort of apply it practically to to kind of different cultural contexts or something like that because um, I work in media studies and so um, it, it feels like uh, a useful uh, and, and novel concept to, to approach uh, information technologies, media technologies and that sort of thing but then having the, the, uh, the third part of the book, having never read the third part of the book, um, it really did uh, open my eyes in terms of um, I don't know, being able to think historically, being able to think um, how knowledge itself is sort of split off a, a, according to some of the, uh, the kind of um, divergences that, that are sort of described in the chart that we kept returning to. And so all of that was very much an opening, an opening moment for me to sort of figure out um, how to understand the, 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 like in my field, that it's just rattled off as the socio-technical, right? When in reality, it has this very profound set of bifurcations running through it um, that is that is that are long and long on historical detail and 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 that that should matter and so I think what probably for me what um, I came away with was a, a much deeper understanding of what 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 could mean by the socio-technical on the basis of the third part of the book 
Oh, I, I, I guess it, it's, it can be my turn <laughs> if I take it. Uh, I, I actually, uh, I've been, yeah, I, I've tried, I've been very invested in each part, every part I read, but uh, the part that made the uh, strongest effect on me was the part about the minority and majority uh, distinction uh, as two modes of learning in the second book, in the second part, sorry. Uh, minorities being this more immediate uh, contact uh, of the craftsperson, let's say, uh, which does not require the uh, formulation, uh, verbal formulation and uh, intersubjective or formidable intersubjective and linguistic um, instruction. Uh, it, it is uh, mediated uh, through the material only, but majority is it's the realm of in, intersubjective. So uh, that distinction, I see the reason why he makes that, but I also find a lot of um, similarities with what he's doing there, uh, between what he's doing there and some uh, more Eurocentric uh, approaches to uh, savage versus uh, more rational ways of thinking. Uh, so that's uh, something I'm interested in this, uh, as part of a general uh, discussion of uh, what constitutes propositional and non-propositional ways of uh, knowing and uh, knowing perhaps and thinking. And, and I'm also interested in something he barely touches on, but he does touch on, I think, uh, the question of language. Uh, it's also from the same part, as far as I remember. Uh, at some point, he compares uh, how images travel better, as it were, uh, than uh, language in terms of uh, tech, the instruction of in instruction and technicity. So he has this example of how cathode ray tubes and these radar screens are really good ways of uh, learning about technicity. So uh, this serves as some sort of inroad to uh, uh, a hunch about his uh, general ideas about diagrams. I am interested in finding something like an underpinning uh, schematic thinking in his work, like this, that does not work through language, uh, verbalization. It seems to me the writing of this work, uh, it follows uh, a few nonverbal uh, schemas and it, it is basically a translation uh, of a, a huge architecture uh, that is essentially nonverbal. I don't know, uh, an architecture of concepts and notions and ideas. That's good put. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in connection with that last point, it, it is, it's noteworthy that, you know, everyone, pretty much everyone that reads this book feels the need to uh, either draw that diagram or consult that diagram of, of the different uh, um, concepts, especially in the, in the third part of the book. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think you're, you're. I think that's a good way of putting it. Is that this book is sort of translated from the diagram. Uh, the diagram is almost more fundamental than the uh, verbal form of expression that uh, 
that um, you know constitutes the book as we have it. Izzy, do you have uh, a takeaway or something that you uh, um, found interesting or uh, um, gained from the reading this book? Yes, thank you. Um, I came here really late and I immediately am very, very impressed by you guys. And uh, well, for me, um, I am, I came here wanting to learn more about individuation, what that means in Simondon. And um, of course, it ends up being fascinating, um, the last part, the, the trans individual as a term. And um, I am also very much uh, thinking a lot about how he uses the term the collective. He mentioned uh, uh, emancipation, but I also find it, you know, uh, that there's a little bit of confusion that I look forward to thinking more about regarding his way of talking about nature, uh, something to do with how I think somewhere a couple of uh, obsessions ago we talked about how individuation never exhausts pre-individuation or uh, uh, this relationship between nature and individuation is um, particularly something that comes back to me a lot in Simondon because I'm currently working on Whitehead's process in reality and I would say that the idea of nature as produced in that in my own work is very important but here is sort of confusing whether or not what how he really defines nature and of course this last paragraph throws me way off when he talks about the law of the real which you non manifest says is also you know can be read as nature so there's a lot of takeaway for me um and i am super eager to read individuation uh, the books. So, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know you uh, you worked on Whitehead. Um, I've uh, I've tried reading Process and Reality a number of times, but I've always um, sort of uh, given up after a few chapters because <laughs> it sort of breaks my head. But I, I should probably uh, you know push through and and uh, and read it. Uh, I've I've read some of his other less uh, sort of um, abstract uh, books um, and they're uh, they're very interesting so I, sh I should probably persist a little bit more I have no idea how to read Whitehead I am barely so many pages in and I'm super confused but I'm forced to read it because I am reading Isabel Stinger's thinking with Whitehead and you know halfway through the book I just thought ah oh, I <laughs> I need to actually take a look at process and reality and um so I, I, I'm, I'm not finished with either, but this is incredibly helpful because I think there is a philosopher, I don't know how to say his name, Didier Debes. Yeah. I think he wrote about um, Stingers and also Whitehead, and he, he also emphasized the concept of nature in Whitehead being important and relevant now. Anyway, so um, this is really, really helpful because I think individuation is basically what Whitehead means uh, in um, in his book um, Concretions or the or creativity. Uh, but I think you know these are very parallel, not necessarily similar things. But now I'm really able to read my Whitehead better too. So 
Wow, I'm jealous. Um, we tried uh, doing Whitehead in the Process Philosophy Group, and uh, my friend was just so negative about it. He was just like, nobody's understanding this. Everything's bad. So we canceled Whitehead, and we ended up reading Heraclitus for like weeks after. I I have not met a single person who would be willing to read Whitehead. Oh, I was I was bummed that we stopped. I wanted to do it so bad. Like I've yeah, I've been waiting to do it for a while. So I I only got like three chapters in with a group though. I'm cheating with Didier DeBase and Isabel Stinger, so really I'm reading Whitehead through them. So, but I have to say because Whitehead wrote in English rather than French, it helps because Stinger's Stinger's is not only translated, my French is terrible, but um. That the sentence structures is difficult, whereas Whitehead is different. And anyway, yeah, just I I'm cheating off of you. I already downloaded the book that you're talking about. I'm gonna look at it too. <laughs> and also, I posted it in the in the Discord if y'all are interested. Yeah, I mean, if one day anybody wants to read Whitehead, let me know. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say that I think uh, maybe after we finish the Simon Dom book, uh, the individuation book, you know, that it will be months from now. But uh, maybe we can take a look at Whitehead after that. Oh my God, that would be amazing because ever since I joined this group, my head is clearer. I I, I forgot how. I mean, graduate school has been years ago, so I I forgot just how great it is to read sentence after sentence and i hope we never stray from this format because you know i don't know what your all's experiences and reading groups are but it's the ones that we read line by line that really matters to me yeah oh same actually my favorite ones are like that too yeah i have to say it's definitely been an extremely uh, disciplined group in that respect and I'm, i'm grateful for it too yeah, I uh, I only really picked up this um, approach through the uh, the well in this server um, like they were doing the anti Oedipus reading. I haven't really been uh, uh, following with that uh, recently, but uh, you know I, I I saw the way they were doing it, and I thought that was that was like a, a really good um, approach to difficult texts. You know, not just sort of glossing over. The difficulties, but sort of staying with it and saying like, what exactly is going on here, and, and trying to analyze it. Um, I think it really helps to uh, get a deeper understanding of the text. And I also um, wanted to thank everybody too for uh, you know we've we've been I think really consistent. I think we missed like one session over the whole time reading this book. Um, um, so. Uh, uh, yeah, we, we've just been really consistent uh, and we kept going. Um, I mean, reading a book might not be like a, a sort of huge accomplishment on its own, but I, I do think with uh, you know, getting through a, a whole book, you know, a lot more reading groups start than, than finish a book, I would say. So uh, I think we uh, can con- congratulate ourselves a little bit on, on sticking with it and, and getting through the whole book.